0: guys can go ahead and take a seat. Uh, Good to be with you guys this morning. My name is Alex. I serve as one of the pastors here. I'd love to just pray uh, as we settle in uh, and just uh, respond to God's word. Lord, I thank you that uh, you are continuing to be at work in our lives. I thank you that your word is alive and that uh, we get to gather here today to hear from it. I pray that your spirit would move in our hearts and that we would come to a greater understanding of who you are, and that our understanding would lead us to uh, greater worship of you, Jesus, uh, because you are the great king who deserves all worship, who deserves all glory. So we just pray this morning, uh, Lord, would you be exalted, and would we continue to just uh, be in awe of who you are, Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen. A question for everyone in the room this morning. Have you ever participated in something but really have no idea why? you ever gone to an event or been part of a crowd maybe and you've started to see people kind of start to do something and you're like, oh, we're like just chanting or we're following along and we're just trying to see this mass crowd and we're just like, what's happening? Or maybe you've done this with like different family traditions, you partake in them and you're kind of like, I have no idea why we do this, but it's what we do as a family. Well, we have a couple of family traditions that uh, we did uh, when I was a kid, and we still actually do as a family. Um, And the first one is uh, breaking of the pinata. When I was a kid, Every single birthday, uh, we'd kind of get ready, we'd get excited, and there'd be a pinata, ever birthday party it was, and so as we're getting ready for the celebration and getting ready to break open, like, the papier-mâché animal or monster, whatever it was, you'd fill it with candy, you'd give kids the stick, you'd put the blindfold on them, you'd spin them as many times as they were old, and then if you're the one who's, like, got the rope slinging, you're just trying to, like, beat the kids with it, um, and you're just trying to, like, actually celebrate something. But as I was thinking about it this last week, I was like, where did that come from? Like, why, why do we do that? I thought I was kind of pondering, oh, maybe it's just like a Mexican tradition that we just do. And so I started Googling. I'm like, okay, why, why does this actually happen at birthday parties? Come to find out, that uh, the background for piñatas is actually that it's an old Aztec religious tradition, where they would decorate these pots, and they would fill the pots with a bunch of different ornaments, and they did this in order to celebrate the birthday uh, of like uh, an Aztec god. Uh, so my whole childhood, I'm just participating in pagan worship, but um, okay. <laughs> uh, and so they would take the stick, right? And they would, they'd break open the clay pots. And then after that, all the ornaments would fall. And so the, the symbolism then for them would have been that like as the ornaments fell, they were falling to the feet of the Aztec God. And it was like idol worship to them. It was like a sacrifice to them. And I'm like, wow, every time I eat that piece of candy, I'm just like, worshiping that god oh Uh, okay Uh, but i come to find out hey over time it's just it's changed right the tradition is now just celebrating the kid's birthday so it's kind of taking the birthday celebration and just tied it to people rather than the aztec god um and so now when you go hit a piñata you can kind of think about that in the back of your mind but the second example of a family tradition that i was kind of like i don't know why we do that uh was something called the cake smash The cake smash. So if if you're at a birthday party, every time it was my birthday, it seemed to happen the most. Um, But of course, we're sitting there in front of the cake. I got my Power Ranger cake right in front of me or my Pokemon cake, whatever it was when I was a kid. And they're singing me happy birthday. All attention's on me. I'm loving it. Candles are rolling. And I'm ready to blow these things out. I blow them out. And the very first time it happened, I remember I was like, what just happened? Uh, Someone would run up behind me the second all the candles were done and just bam! face into the cake and I just like what is going on you know you're just like excited to eat this thing and your whole face has it now and no one else can eat it because your boogers are all over it (laughs) and I'm kind of pondering why did that happen So I start going on throughout life as a kid, and I start to realize, oh, it happens to all my cousins too, and then it stops happening to them, and then my uncle's still doing it to me, and I'm like, what is happening? Uh, So I start, you know, I'm asking questions like, okay, why did that happen? Why is that a tradition? Is that just something we do? Start researching that on Google, trying to figure out, hey, why do we do this cake smash thing? Doesn't seem very fun. Uh, But uh, I start researching it, and it comes to turn out that actually the cake smash happens as a symbol of good luck in response to, like, how good the cake is, uh, you're actually celebrating, hey, would your next year be as full of good luck, as good as the taste of the cake is? So if it's a bad tasting cake, you're not going to have a very good year. Um, But all these traditions, man, they just have these meanings, and sometimes we partake in them, and we have no idea why. Like, we have no clue why our family does the things that they do. And there's sometimes where you're maybe in school. Like, I was watching the preschoolers with We Wisdom this last week. And they're kind of, like, getting in line to go wherever. They probably have no idea why they're getting in line. They're just doing it because, like, it's what they're supposed to do, you know. But there's actually, like, reasons behind all these things. And maybe you're sitting there pondering even right now. Hey, my family has some things. And I'm like... Why do we do that? You may be thinking and wondering about that, but the truth is uh, that there's often different traditions that our families partake in. We don't completely understand the the meaning behind them. I think the same thing is is true for God's family. I I think the same thing is true for us as the church, that there's different traditions that we as a church partake in and participate in that we have no idea why we actually do them. Well, uh, this morning, we're talking about the Lord's Supper, and we're seeing that Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper, and I think there's maybe some confusion even around the room, or as you've been walking through life, that you've never stopped to think, what does this actually mean for us? Like, why do we do this? Maybe you've just gone your whole life and have participated in it because you've just grown up in the church. It's what your family does, and so you say, okay. Okay. But my hope is for us this morning that as we're considering the At the Table series, as we're considering the fact that we've been welcomed to the table, it's a place of community, as Ricky kind of preached on last week, that uh, us examining the Lord's Supper would be something that we would be in awe of. It it would help our understanding of really what we're looking at and and see how great Jesus is. and, And that our theology then would then lead to greater worship. So I want us to dive into the Gospel of Mark chapter 14, uh, and we'll just read the first couple of verses again. So you can grab your Bible and you can read with me. Mark 14, verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, what, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, going into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house. The teacher says, "Where is my guest room, where, uh, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples?" He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So the Gospel of Mark, we really haven't been in it, so I want to give us just a smidge of context. It's the life of Jesus. It's jam-packed with action. It's the shortest one of the Gospels, and it's just action after action after action. We just see Jesus kind of moving. We're watching Him uh, perform miracles. He proclaims the kingdom of God. He foretells of his death to come. People are being healed. And at this point in the gospel story, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem so that we've got the great scene where Jesus rides in on the donkey. Everybody's chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're just praising and worshiping this man. And it starts to just... The tension starts to rise because we see the religious leaders aren't happy with this. They're not so happy that Jesus is kind of walking into the temple. He's cleansing the temple, throwing tables. The religious leaders, they they are rebuked by Jesus. And they get to the point to where they want to plot to kill him. They start thinking, we got to get rid of this guy. We got to do something about this. And the tension continues to build. But on the Passover, we kind of slow down here for a quick sec. And Jesus is talking about the Passover. He wants his disciples to go and prepare a place for them. So he sends two of them into the city and he says, hey, find the guy who's carrying the water and he's going to take you uh, to the room that it's prepared. And we're kind of like, okay, good luck finding that guy in all of Jerusalem. Uh, but it actually would have been pretty easy because typically the women would have been the ones carrying the jars of water. And so for uh, the disciples to see a man carrying a jar of water, everybody would have kind of been like, what's that guy doing? Uh, And so clearly they know who to go to, and so they're able to find him. He takes them to the upstairs room where they celebrate the Passover, and they start getting everything ready. And as they start getting prepared for the Passover, it's important to know for us that the Passover was something that only happened within the walls of Jerusalem. If you, wanted, if you were Jewish and you wanted to celebrate the Passover, you would literally have to go from wherever you were, you'd have to go to Jerusalem, you'd have to be in the town, and that's where you would need to celebrate it. And it's actually Jewish custom, as you read, he's going to say, hey, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover? So it's customary. For uh, them to, if they had a spare room, if they've got an extra room, they would have that open and available for people to be able to partake in the Passover. So if a pilgrim kind of comes to town, they're not from Jerusalem, and they're trying to ask people, hey, do you have an extra room? Do you have an extra room? Do you have an extra room? To see if they had a place where they could go and actually celebrate the Passover for themselves. And so it was Jewish custom for them to have a, a room ready for somebody else. The Passover meal consisted of a bunch of different things. There's the bread, the wine, the bitter herbs, the sauce, and the lamb. That was uh, the sacrifice, right? The meal had great meaning to the Jewish people. It was a celebration. I mean, could you imagine the whole entire town... It's kind of like as we think about Christmas, right? You kind of know the whole place is locked down. I think Christmas is like the one day a year that Walmart shuts down for a couple of hours. Um, And you just know everybody is celebrating this. Everybody's partaking in this meal. And that's because of the significance that it had for the Israelites. If you flip back in their history and you go all the way to the beginning of the Bible and you go to the book of Exodus, you kind of get the story of how the Passover came to be. It's a celebration of the reality that God saved Israel out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt, and uh, the Exodus is actually a great story where we get to see God just continue to save his people. He rescues them from oppression. He brings them out of slavery, and so as you start to look at the main characters in that story, if you've read the Exodus story, or even if you haven't, there's Moses, who's kind of the prophet that God's raising up to be God's people, and he goes to Pharaoh, who's ruling over Egypt, and he's enslaved the Israelite people, and he's communicating to them, hey, God, God's instructing you to let the people go. And Pharaoh's like, mm, Nah, probably not. And so God sends a plague, and then Pharaoh's kind of like, okay, okay, I'll, I'll let him go. And then th- there's just this back and forth for nine plagues up until it gets to the point where there's a tenth plague. And this tenth plague that God was going to send was one that it would come over at midnight. The angel of the Lord would kind of go over the town, and every firstborn son uh, would lose his life. But God provided a way uh, uh, for salvation for the firstborn sons. So God instructs them in what to do in order to make it so their firstborn son would not lose their life that night at midnight. He tells the people, hey, take an unblemished, a a clean uh, lamb, and sacrifice it. When you sacrifice that, take the blood of the lamb, and you're going to put it over your doorposts as a symbol, as a sign for the angel of the Lord to know, hey, this door is covered by the sacrifice of the lamb. Then you would eat the lamb. You'd feast on that and the bitter herbs with the unleavened bread. And the blood would just be that sign for everybody to know, okay, that place is covered. That place is covered. That place is covered. And if you didn't have like the the means to actually provide a lamb, you could go to a neighbor, right? You could go next door and you could celebrate the Passover with them and you could uh, continue to just worship God in that way. And God would protect that house so it happened that of course Pharaoh is like I'm not worshiping that God so he doesn't partake in the Passover he doesn't do the sacrifice with the lamb and it comes to the point to where it hits midnight and his firstborn son is then dead taken from him so out of anger Pharaoh responds and he's like all right well get these people out of here So God has freed his people by his amazing power so they're no longer in slavery, they're no longer in captivity, and this is the story of the Passover. This is what the Israelite people are celebrating every single year when this day comes up. They're remembering God's amazing power. It's a reminder of how God saved them from the Egyptian oppression, that he's continuing to be faithful to the promise he gave them, and he's going to be faithful over time and time again. Because as they're walking through the night, as they're partaking in the Passover, there's actually an exact way that they would do it. There's an order to every single element of the dinner. And as time goes on, it's just this reminder time and time again, God saved you from slavery. God brought you out of Egypt. God has brought you to a place where you are now free from that. And the lamb was such an important part for them. Is the main course of the whole meal because that was a picture for them to see. Right before their eyes, God provided a sacrifice for us. God did something for us to actually look at and there was blood that was spilled so that we could escape the plague of death and slavery itself. And so this is why Jesus instructs them, hey, go and prepare a place because everybody else is partaking it. We're Jewish people. We should be celebrating this. We should be looking to this. And then he continues on and we get the next set of verses that kind of describe how the meal uh, starts. And in verse 17, it reads this, when evening came, he arrived arrived with the 12 and while they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go, just as it's written about him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. The picture of the meal sets the stage for all of us to kind of sit and ponder and wonder, okay, they're having this celebration feast, and they're reclining, they're enjoying the Passover meal, they've got the wine, they've got the unleavened bread, they've got the herbs, imagine your Thanksgiving feast in a couple of months you got the big old turkey. you got mama's chicken pot pie. you got grandma's brownies that are just chilling there. You're ready to dive into all this food. You're enjoying time. And then somebody in your family stops the room and says, Hey, everyone, I've got cancer. Hey, everyone, we're getting a divorce. It would cut through like a knife, wouldn't it? Like the celebration and and the moments where you're just in awe of of telling stories of how your cousin's been doing, what they were off doing at college, their last trip over the summer, and you're gathered together and you're just rejoicing in everything happening, and then this just happens. Mom, dad, whoever, just kind of speaks up and says, hey, we're splitting up. It's almost the same tension that we get in this picture because... As they're walking through the Passover meal, they're reclining, they're eating, they're probably talking about, man, did you see Jesus heal that leper? Oh my gosh, the Sermon on the Mount was so amazing. Holy cow, did you see Jesus walk on water? Like they're, they're probably just amazed at everything that God's been doing while He's been walking with them. And then He stops the meal cold and says, one of you is going to betray Me. Uh... I don't really know what to do with that, Jesus. And and you're sitting there pondering as Jesus kind of cuts through the room with with a dagger like that in verse 18. And then verse 19, they respond like completely distressed. One by one, each of them says, not me. Surely not I, Jesus. I would never betray you, Lord. And, And as Jesus again continues to just talk with them and In verse 20, he says, it is one of the 12, the one who has been dipping the bread in the bowl with me. It's kind of like, oh, well, all of us did that because that's what they all would have done as they're passing the bowl and they're partaking in the Passover. They all would have taken the bread and they dipped it into the herbs and they're eating that. And so they're all sitting there like, well, who is it? And he says, one of you will have betrayed me. The tension in the room is so high. The celebration cut to just an end. And we kind of get the inside scoop because it's 2,000 years later and we have the scriptures that we get to read. But in verse 10, we read that Judas Iscariot, who's one of the 12, he went to the chief priests to betray Jesus. And when they heard this, they were glad. They promised him money so that he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. So on this side of history, we're kind of like, Pfft, that dude's garbage. Judas, Mm-mm. can't be hanging out with that guy. He, how could he betray Jesus? He's one of the disciples. Jesus trusted him. And it's really easy for us to hate him. Is it not? Like, I'm thinking of, you know, all the TV shows and stuff that they kind of have that try and portray Jesus' life. And it's like, man, whoever plays Judas, you don't want to be that dude. And I'm watching, you know, you're watching the last season of The Chosen, if you watched it, and then they're kind of like, oh, Judas, and I'm like, oh, dang, because you're kind of like that dude, mm-mm, because you kind of like him the whole season, you know, if you've seen it, you're kind of like, oh, this guy's really nice, and then you recognize it, like, halfway through, and you're like, oh, mm, that guy's garbage, hate him, <laughs> he hasn't even done anything yet, and you're like, mm, he's, he's wicked, never hire him again for another movie, never, and the Passover meal, it, it's just a sacred celebration. Think about Christmas. Think about Thanksgiving. Who comes to those meals? The people that are closest to you. That, that's who you're celebrating with. The people who, like, you've grown up with. It's family. It's friends who are tight-knit and close. That's who you celebrate with. So you imagine for the Israelites to invite somebody into your home, it meant that they meant something to you. Not just at a Passover celebration, but just in general. You didn't kind of welcome strangers into your home. It was was a tight-knit community that you said, you're going to sit at my table with me. And so for them to kind of sit and ponder in the room, man, this is the people who you're closest to this entire time. And Jesus says, it is, it's not even just out of the people who are all there. One of the 12, one of my closest followers is going to be the one who betrays me. So for a close friend, I don't know if you've ever been betrayed by like a really close family member or friend, but I have. And it cuts deep. It leaves scars. Like, like, there's a way that I respond to, to things in my life because of the way that I've been impacted by some of my closest friends or, or some family members who have betrayed me in different ways. And you're thinking, this guy is sitting at the dinner table. He's laughing with me. He's enjoying our fellowship together. He's dipping his own food in the same food that I'm eating. And he's going to betray me. I don't want that dude at my meal. And yet Jesus continues to sit with him, and it's easy for us to get really frustrated and to see the grievous act that Judas commits by handing Jesus over for a couple of pieces of silver. But the truth is, Judas is not the only one who betrayed Jesus. We get caught up and start thinking, oh yeah, Judas, he's the wicked villain. He's the horrible one. He's the one who sold Jesus out. I can't believe it. He betrayed Jesus for his greed. But if you keep reading, you start to see, oh wait, right after this, there's Peter's denial, right? Where Jesus starts to say, hey, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. No, I won't. And you keep reading the story and, and actually he does. You read a little bit further in chapter 14 and it's the prayer in the garden where they go to the Gethsemane and Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and he's like, hey guys, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to pray. Will you guys just stay right here and pray with me? Just, just pray with me. Jesus goes over, he comes back, they're passed out sleeping. Hey, um, let me wake you up a little bit. Hey guys, can you, can you just be praying like I'm really fighting something right now? Oh, yeah, 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 Jesus. Okay. Goes over, comes back. They're passed out again. And so they betray Jesus out of their weakness. And then there's kind of the whole betrayal scene where Judas comes in and they come and arrest Jesus. And Peter's like, ah, with the sword, cut some dude's ear off. Jesus is like, let me put that back on for you. Cool little magic trick there for a quick sec. Um, And you just start to watch this. And you start to see that, man, this is crazy because in verse 50 of chapter 14, we read that it says, then they all deserted him and ran away. They were so afraid of their own comfort that every single person who was closest to Jesus deserted him and left him for dead. To the point to where one of them ran away naked. That's, that's some real cowardice, is it not? Not? And as as we start to read this, we, we go, Yeah, Peter, James, John, how could you do that? Like just drink some coffee, stay awake and pray. I've never fallen asleep while I'm praying. <laughs> never. Uh, and we get self righteous. In these moments, we start, how could you do that? How could you run away? I would stand up for Jesus when they come after me. I would be the one to stand high and strong. I would be the one to actually say, yes, Jesus, I will be there. And we start thinking, surely not I. But the truth is that the scriptures tell us something different. If we start reading the Bible, it's a reality that just as much as Judas, Peter, Peter, James, John, all of the disciples let Jesus down, so did we. We betrayed Him just as much as they did. It's just 2,000 years later. And as we start to read this, we're reminded of the fact that the Bible tells us the story that every single person has committed sin. Every single person has uh, disobeyed God. Every single person has betrayed Him himself. And this meal is not just a picture of Jesus' disciples who have totally let Him down and deserted Him and left Him for dead. But it's the same story that while we are welcomed to this table here today, this very moment, we too have let Him down. But there's good news with it. Because on this side of history we get to rejoice that that's not the end of the story. Friends, while we have betrayed God, while we're just as guilty for Jesus' death as Judas was, as the one who we hate, as the one who we get weird feelings about, we go, oh, I don't want to be that guy. We're just as guilty for Jesus' death as Him. Because of our sin, Christ came. He died on the cross because we committed sin against Him. He came willingly as a living sacrifice so that we could have everlasting life with him. He came willingly to give his body for us, to pour out his blood that would be shed over us, that we just get to witness this amazing work of grace and freedom that we have. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus did come, but he came for those who would betray him. Mark 10.45, it tells us earlier in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus, the Son of Man, He came to give His life as a ransom for many. And He came that we would be set free from the bondage of the slavery of our sin. You know, the first meal is this great picture, the Passover. They're remembering God's work and how He brought them to be free out of the slavery that they were in over Egypt Egypt, that had oppression over them. And as we look to the great communion table, the Lord's Supper that we get to partake in, it's a reminder and a picture for us to be reminded of the fact that Jesus gave His body for us. He shed His blood. He poured it out for us. And we are set free from the bondage of, of, of our sin. We're no longer slaves to our sin, but we worship Jesus himself. We get to sing to the King of Kings, the God of the ages, the one who came for us, and it is a free gift. It's a free gift that we just get to witness what God has done. And we get to take it and receive it. He doesn't say, hey, let me make sure that you do 10 things before you actually come to me. Hey, let me make sure that um, you've got this uh, set of rules kind of figured out. Make sure you bow down before me like six times in the day. Make sure your quiet time and your Bible reading is like an hour and a half and you've studied perfectly and you know every single Bible verse before you come to faith. No, Jesus says, come to me. Come to the altar. I came for you. That's the greatest news of the gospel that we get to read that the old meal shows us the first look at freedom but the new meal it shows us what true freedom actually is. So let's keep reading. Verse 22. As they were eating he took bread he blessed it broke it gave it to them and said, "Take it. This is my body." Then he took the cup after giving thanks. He gave it to them and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus takes the two parts of the Passover meal. The bread, he breaks it, he blesses it. And he changes what it was. He gives it a new meaning, a new symbol. It's It's a new covenant picture for us to see what God's done. He gives it to them as a symbol of his body. Not that it actually transforms into his body, but it's just bread that's a symbol, a picture for them. Does the same thing with the blood. He says, this is my blood that's poured out for you right? It's, the, it's the, the wine, the juice that we have. It's again, a symbol that we get to see that Jesus is drawing us into this new covenant relationship. And when Jesus says, hey, this is the blood of the covenant, what he's doing is he's pointing back to the book of Exodus, because there's this story where Moses, he takes the blood of the sacrifice uh, lamb, and he's sitting there in the blood of the covenant. He grabs it, he dips his hands in it, and he just starts splashing it all over the people. And Jesus isn't saying, hey, go splash the juice all over your head when you take the Lord's Supper, but He's saying, I want you to picture that it's not just like splashed on your face and you get some sprinkling, but it is poured out for you. The blood is, is a, this new covenant picture that we get to rejoice in what God has done. And so the Passover meal, like I said before, each piece of it has a different symbol that they would have looked to and recognized and realized, man, this has meaning. This has depth. Each piece, as they go throughout the night, they would have been continuing, hey, they take the... the The bread, they dip it into the spices and they start telling one part of the Passover. Then they take the first cup of the wine and they drink it, and then they tell another story of the Passover. And there's this great illustration that God paints for them to really realize and see what the Passover meal was. And so for us today, we're reminded of the Lamb, the sacrifice that they once had, that they got to look to. The Lamb painted the picture that it was given for them and the blood that was on the doorpost. We start to see that, but there's actually Actually, something really sweet that Jesus does here as he's communicating the Lord's Supper in the first time, because there would have been four cups of wine that they would have had throughout the night, and each cup had a different symbol. The the four cups would have represented four promises that God gave to them. You can find these four promises in the book of Exodus, chapter 6, verses uh, 6 and 7, but the first cup, it represented uh, the rescue from Egypt. The second cup, it would have represented the freedom from slavery. The third cup, it would have represented uh, the redemption by God's power. And the fourth cup, it would have represented this new relationship with God as his people. So there's the four cups that had uh, different meaning. And so as we look at these different cups and what they symbolize, we can infer that as Jesus is having the Passover meal, it's it's sweet to see what he does because when he takes the the third cup, it's what we think he's doing with verse 24. He says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And you start to realize that the third cup symbolizes God's redemptive power. Do you realize what Jesus is doing here? He's pointing to his own blood. He's saying, I'm the sacrificed lamb. The third cup is representing my blood that was poured out for you and my redemptive power is coming to you because of what I've done. The picture is beautiful. And he doesn't just stop there because then he goes on to the next cup and he says, hey, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine, so the wine. He's not going to drink the fourth cup when until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Remember what the fourth cup symbolized? God claiming his people. And so what we see through this illustration, Jesus is pointing us forward. He's saying, when I drink this new, it will be the great wedding feast that we get to look to at what God's been doing. How he's saved countless people. How he's grabbed us and snatched us up and said, you are mine. We're rejoicing. We're celebrating at the victory that we have because I came for you. We need to worship God in this new celebration. And the fourth cup is a picture for us to see the kingdom of God is real and that God's moving and He has this redemptive power for us to look at. And Jesus is pointing us to the renewal of the entire world. He's pointing us to the reality. And we start to see that, man, from the beginning of time, God was writing one story time after time, ages after ages, and we start to see that, man, what happened in Exodus is brought to a beautiful picture here in the Gospels where we see Jesus' life. And it's also pointing us forward to when we read the book of Revelation. We have to read that amazing wedding feast of what God's done. And we're all going to be sitting at the table rejoicing with Jesus. And I imagine Him holding the fourth cup, celebrating the great victory that He had. And all of us just rejoicing at what God has done. We have free everlasting life with Christ himself. And Jesus here, he's inviting the disciples to actually take part in this. You know what gets me? Is this comes after he just told them, one of you will betray me. I'd be stopped in my sandals. <laughs> just... Sitting there thinking, you just you just told me one of you, one of us is gonna betray you. And now you're telling me your blood's gonna be shed for me. Why would I deserve that? Why would I deserve any of it? I just let my best friend to the point to where I ran away naked in fear and cowardice for the greed for my possessions and I chose that stuff over him. And he's saying, take my blood. Joyfully poured out for you. We just don't deserve it. And yet God is so gracious and compassionate and marvelous and awe-inspiring that we can see that we have complete forgiveness, grace that abounds, life everlasting with Jesus because it doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, everything that you've committed in your past, Jesus says, my blood will cover it. It was poured out for you. No matter where you've been, what you've committed, I'm here for you. And He points us to celebrate with Him. What good news that is. Here's why this matters for each and every single one of us. Because if we've actually trusted in Jesus, if we've given our life to Christ, we have a privilege that we get to partake in the Lord's Supper. This is more than just a routine. This is more than just getting up in line and grabbing your bread and getting over that little bit of hunger that you might have had and walking back to your seat. This is more than just like a tradition that we kind of participate in. It's a picture for us to see who Jesus is and the Lord's Supper that Jesus gave to them is the same supper that He's giving to us that we get to rejoice that Jesus has come for us. We get to look to our King. We get to remember the amazing fact that we've been saved by grace, blood that was spilled for us when we didn't deserve it at all. I I want us to see... My, my hope and my prayer for us, church, is that this wouldn't just be a regular rhythm that we just kind of do. That this wouldn't just be something that's just like, oh, okay, guess I'm moving on to the next thing. But it, that would shape our hearts. That we would be moved to worship of Jesus. That the symbolism of would draw us to see that there's amazing life with Christ. That the theology, the information, the knowledge would not just sit there and it's, oh, I learned some facts about four cups. But that it would drive us to be like, man, I I get to take this every other week and I don't deserve it. Yet God's so gracious to give it to me. Every time we take communion, we read out of First uh, Corinthians eleven. So, if you want, you can turn there. First Corinthians eleven. And there's a lot in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 that kind of points you to communion. And uh, really what Paul's doing here is he's instructing the church in how to take it properly because the Corinthian church, they were uh, just actually taking it poorly. They were treating it as like just food. They were uh, doing it in their homes. They were partaking of it poorly throughout this whole time. And the whole reason he's writing to them is to say, hey, don't take it in an unworthy manner. Like it is important that you take this the way that it's been instructed And so for us to sit here and examine, hey, how should we be partaking? What should we be thinking about as we examine the Lord's Supper? I want to give us four things to look to. Four things to look to as we uh, think about and consider the Lord's Supper. The first thing is that we would look back and remember who Jesus is, and we would remember what he's done. Seems like that's the easy one, right? You read it and you're kind of like, oh yeah, in verse uh, chapter 11, verse 24, when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. And then he tells us, do this in remembrance of me. Does the same thing with the blood. He says, hey, do this in remembrance of me. So as we sit here, even when the people come up for communion and they break the bread and they give it to you, they say, Christ's body given for you. And when they, the person who's holding the, the juice, you dip it in the juice and they say Christ's blood that was poured out for you. We do that because we want you to actually remember who Jesus is. We want you to actually remember what he's done. And so the first thing is to look back and remember uh, who Christ is and what he's done. The second thing is to look ahead to the anticipation. Look ahead to the anticipation of the kingdom of God that we get to rejoice with Jesus that one day we're all going to be having that fourth cup with him, rejoicing in the kingdom of God that he has come for broken, messy people, proclaiming what Jesus has done. Read verse 26 there in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. It says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a proclamation. You know, we call baptism and communion or the Lord's Supper, we call those sacraments. Sacrament just means visible sign. That's all it means. Uh, It's a fancy church word. And so when you're thinking about what these things are, they're visible outward signs of us proclaiming what Jesus has done, right? The baptism, we're proclaiming that Christ has saved us. He's made us new. We're washed away. Our sin is washed away with Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. And with the Lord's Supper, as we're partaking in this, we're dipping our bread in the juice. We're going back and we're remembering that Christ's body was shed for us or Christ's body was given for us, His blood was poured out for us, and we're looking forward to the kingdom of God. They're visible signs of an inward reality. It's something that's happened in our life, in our hearts. We've been transformed by God. And that's why we say, hey, if, if you're not a Christian, you probably shouldn't partake in this. Um, because what it tells us is when you do this, you're proclaiming His death until He comes. So you're saying with your, with your actions, Jesus died for me and he's coming back for me. So that's why when we address communion, we're kind of like, hey, if you're not in Christ, we'd love for you to just sit and consider what Christ has done. We'd love for you to take the meal if Jesus has changed your life. That's a redemptive act that we want to celebrate that God's done. But if you're not in Christ, we ask you to withhold. And I know sometimes it can be a little tricky for parents specifically. Maybe how you're like, should my kid take communion? Should he not take communion? Who should take communion? Uh, and so a good rule of thumb for you to think, if, if you've got kids, it, if your child hasn't on their own professed and said, man, I'm, I'm someone who's in sin, who's walked away from Jesus, but I know that he died for me. And I want to trust in him for the rest of my life. If your own child has not communicated that they believe who Jesus is, they probably shouldn't take communion. Not if you did like a child dedication or you did the parent commissioning. Like it, it's their own proclamation of their faith. Or if, if maybe you don't personally think that they're ready for, for their own baptism, like if, you don't, if they can't communicate the gospel, if you, you don't think maybe they're ready to do that, they probably shouldn't take communion because it's a proclamation of their faith and you want their faith to be their own faith. And it's a sweet illustration and a sweet story if you're kind of sitting there and you're thinking, oh shoot, that's weird, I'm going to go and my kid's just going to sit here. But it's a time for you as a parent to have a conversation with them. It's like a sweet discipleship moment where you get to draw this picture, this illustration. Hey, what we're doing. This, this is a symbol for us to actually like consider Jesus' body that was, that was given for us and His blood that was poured out for us. And, and if you want to believe that truth, you can't a free gift. You know, Avery Perkins, you know, like a year maybe ago, was here in communion, kind of talked about it. Her parents talked to her about it, and it was a sweet moment where she got to take communion for the first time because they had a conversation with her. And God moved and pierced her heart and saved her and rejoiced. We got to watch her baptism a, a year ago. And that's just a sweet picture of what God's doing in the life of our church of how he's moving in the life of kids, or uh, if you're kind of pondering, man, should I be taking communion? I don't really know. I take it every week, and my question for you to process, if you're partaking in communion, right, one sacrament, but you haven't been baptized, uh, I'd love to challenge you and say, hey, Why are you partaking in one sacrament but not the other? I'd love to just say, hey, is Jesus welcoming you in to be baptized? We'll bring the tank up. We'll do it next week. We'll figure it out, uh, and we'll get it ready. But uh, it's not a perfect illustration, but something to maybe draw the picture for you is that uh, baptism is almost like the wedding reception. You know, it's a party of the new covenant relationship, and you're celebrating and rejoicing, just like we're rejoicing at what God's done in this new relationship with you and Him. And then communion, the Lord's Supper, is like a picture where you're saying, hey, this is the wedding anniversary. Like, I'm coming back, we're celebrating, we're talking about everything that's happened over the last year, we're going to have fun, and this is a moment for us to just remember that. And so if you're partaking in the anniversary but never had like the wedding reception, I'd be like, let's throw the party. Let's have the wedding reception. But I got sidetracked. That didn't really fit with that point. But okay. Um, self, the third one is self-examination. I, I promise we're tying up here. Third one, self-examination. So when we say reflect, what we mean is actually like look into your heart. What sin have you committed over the last week? Like, what, what's, what's been going on in your own life? How have you been astray from Jesus? How have you rejected God over this last week? But don't sit in the sin because you're supposed to look to the Savior. Like, it's something for us to actually ponder on the, on the good news of the gospel. That every sin that you've committed over the last week, that bread and juice that's sitting in your hand is a picture for you to say, Christ paid for it. All of it. Past, present, future. So the third one is to uh, uh, self examine. The fourth one is to look around in fellowship. You know, if- First Corinthians, Paul's addressing the whole church and how to take it properly. And when we take communion, it's as a church body. We do this as a church who's gathered. We get this from Paul as he says, and he's talking to the Corinthians. He's like, when you gather, he says that five times. So it's clear, this is something that you take when you're a gathered church. And he's making this point about communion. Hey, take this as a symbol of unity. Take this as a visual picture for you to see, man, what God has done among each and every single one of your life. We wait to take communion together when we tell you, hey, take it back to your seat. We're going to take this uh, uh, together because it's a family meal. And I I love, I usually sit like right over there when everybody's coming up and they're grabbing their bread. And I love just watching each person take the bread, take the juice and take it back to their seat. Because it's a picture for me to say time and time again, sin forgiven, debt paid, blood poured out, grace upon grace, Jesus conquered, victory won, over and over and over again. And I look at the picture of this room and it's just a tiny picture of when we get to sit at that table at the wedding feast. And we get to take part in the greatest meal ever. So it's something communal because it shapes us, it forms us. When, when we take that in, when we partake in the Lord's Supper together, it's a, it's a beautiful picture for us to just look at one another and be reminded of the grace that was given to each and every single one of us. You know, Israel, they would partake and they'd celebrate in these feasts together because it was their collective identity. So when we partake in this feast together, it is our collective identity that we are made new by the blood of Christ. We're shaped and formed by what he's done and the grace that's been poured out for us. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper together this morning. As you could imagine, you see the bread. And I'd love for you to actually take some time to examine in your heart what Christ has done. I'd love for you to take some time to reflect on how Jesus has saved you. I'd love for you to look forward to the picture of new creation when we get to sit at that wedding feast with Jesus. And when you're ready, um, you can come and you can grab your bread and you can dip it into the juice and take it back to your seat and wait. And I'll read 1 Corinthians for us to partake in it together. Uh, but there's going to be a couple of questions on the, on the slide for you to ponder on as you're reflecting in your own heart what God's been doing. Um, and there's great beauty that we get to do this when we come together. Church, my hope is that this isn't just like something that we take for granted. When we do this every week during this series and every other week uh, while we're in our regular rhythm, my hope is that we do this not just because it's something we've done our whole lives or because our parents are doing it or because we're just filing in line or we don't want someone to look at us weird if we don't get up or, uh, but that we would actually partake in the Lord's Supper with great understanding of what Christ has done for us. That we would see the picture that is right before your eyes. The visible proclamation of what Christ has done. That Jesus has invited us to the table, to the altar, to partake in in His amazing grace. Church, let's feast. Lord, thanks so much for the good news of the Gospel. Thank You so much that as we partake in the Lord's Supper today, it is a picture for us to see Your grace that is lavished upon us. I pray that, uh, God, our hearts would just be pierced with the good news of the gospel, that we would be reminded that we were dead in our sin, but you brought us to life. I pray that as we uh, just remember the greatest news that we could ever hear, that we would rejoice uh, with awe of who you are and the grace that was poured out for us, God. I pray that our hearts would be fixed on you, Jesus. We pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.